0: Friend Island by Gertrude Barrows-Bennett, writing under the pseudonym Francis Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Friend Island by Gertrude Barrows-Bennett, writing under the pseudonym Francis Stevens. It was upon the waterfront that I first met her, in one of the shabby little tea-shops frequented by the able sailoresses of the poor type. The uptown glittering resorts of the Lady Aviator's Union were not for such as she. Stern of feature, bronzed by wind and sun, her age could only be guessed, but I surmised at once that in her I beheld a survivor of the age of turbans and oil engines, a true sea-woman of that elder time when woman's superiority to man had not been so long recognized, when, to emphasize their victory, women in all ranks were sterner than today's need demands, the spruce, smiling young maidens, engine-women and stokers of the great aluminum rollers, but despite their profession very neat in gold-braided blue knickers and boleros, these looked askance at the hard-faced relic of a harsher day as they passed in and out of the shop. I, however, brazenly ignoring similar glances at myself, a mere male intruding on the haunts of the world's ruling sex, drew a chair up beside the veteran. I ordered a full pot of tea, two cups, and a plate of macaroons, and put on my most ingratiating air. Possibly my unconcealed admiration and interest were wiles not exercised in vain. Or the macaroons and tea, both excellent, may have loosened the old sea woman's tongue. At any rate, under cautious questioning, she had soon launched upon a series of reminiscences well beyond my hopes for colour and variety. "'When I was last,' quoth the sea-woman after a time, "'there was none of the high-flying, gilt-edged, leather-stocking luxury about the sea. "'We sailed by the power of our oil and gasoline. "'If they failed on us, like as not, "'twas the rubber ring and the rolling wave for ours.' She referred to the archaic practice of placing a pneumatic affair called a life preserver beneath the arms in case of that dreaded disaster, now so unheard of, shipwreck. In them days there was still many a man bold enough to join our crews, and I've knowed cases, she added condescendingly, where just by the muscle and brawn of such a man, some poor sailor lass has reached shore alive that would have fed the sharks without him. Oh, I ain't so down on men as you might think. It's the spoiling of them that I don't hold with. There's too much preach nowadays that man is fit for nothing but to fetch and carry and do nurse work in big child homes. To my mind, a man who hasn't the nerve of a woman ain't fitted to father children, let alone raise them. But that's not here nor there. My time's past, and I know it. Or oh, I wouldn't be setting here gossipin' to you, my lad, over an empty teapot. I took the hint, and with our cups replenished, she bit thoughtfully into the fourteenth macaroon, and continued, "'There's one voyage I'm not likely to forget, though I live to be as old as Captain Mary Barnacle of the Shalter. 'Twas "'Twas aboard the old Shelter that this here voyage occurred, and it was her last, and likewise Captain Mary's. "'Captain Mary! She was then that decrepit. It seemed a mercy that she should go to her rest, and in good salt water at that.' I remember the voyage for Captain Mary's sake, but most I remember it because 'twas then that I come the nighest in my life to committing matrimony, for a man the man had nerve. He was nearer being companionable than any other man I ever seed, and if it hadn't been for just one little event that showed up the mannishness of him in a way I couldn't abide, I reckon he'd be keeping house for me this minute. We cleared from Frisco with a cargo of silkatine petticoats for Brisbane. Captain Mary was always strong on petticoats. Leather breeches or even half-skirts would have paid far better, they been more in demand-like. But Captain Mary was three-quarters owner, and says she land women should buy petticoats. And if they didn't, it wouldn't be the Lord's fault nor hers for not providing them. We cleared on a fine day which was an all sign. All was, then when the weather and the seas of God still counted in the trafficking of the humankind. Not two days out, we met a whirling, mucking bouncer of a gale. that well nigh threw the old shelter, a full point off a course in the first wallop. She was a stout craft, though. None of your featherweight, gas-lighted, paper-thin alloy shells, but toughened aluminum from stern to stern. Her turban drove through the combers at a forty-five knot, Clip, which named her a speedy craft for freighter in them days. But this night, as we tore along through the creaming green billows, something unknown went way wrong down below. I was forward under the shelter of a long over sloop, looking for a hairpin I'd dropped somewheres about the afternoon. It was a gold hairpin, and gold still being mighty scarce when I was a girl, of course I valued it. But suddenly I felt the old shouter give a jump under my feet like a plane struck by a shell in full flight. Then she trembled all over for a full second, frightened-like. Then, with the crash of doomsday ringing in my ears, I felt myself sailing through the air, right into the teeth of the shrieking gale as near as I could judge. Down I come in the hollow of a monstrous big wave. And as my ears doused under, I thought I heard a splash close by. Coming up, sure enough, there close by me was floating a new patent hermetic thermal ice chest. Being as it was empty and being as it was shut up air tight, that ice chest made as sweet a life-preserver as a woman could wish in such an hour. About ten foot by twelve, it floated high in the raging sea. Out on its top I scrambled and hanging on by a handle, I looked expectant for some of my poor fellow women to come floating by, which they never did, for the good reason that the shelter had blowed up and went below, petticoats, cap merry and all. What caused the explosion, I inquired. The Lord and Captain Mary Barnacle can explain, she answered piously. Besides the oil for turbines, she carried a power of gasoline for alternative engines, and likely it was the cause of her end so sudden-like. Anyways, all I ever seen of her again was the empty ice chest that Providence had well-nigh hove up my head. On that I sat and floated and floated and sat some more, till by and by the storm sort of blowed itself out. The sun come shining. This was next morning, and I could dry my hair and look about me. "'I was a young lass then, and not bad to look upon. "'I didn't want to die, any more than you that's sitting there this minute. "'So I up and prays for land. "'Sure enough, toward evening, a speck heaves up low down on the horizon. "'At first I took it for a gas-liner, but later found it was just a little island, "'all alone by itself in the great Pacific Ocean.' Come now, here's luck, thinks I, and with that I deserts the ice-chest, which, being empty, and me having no ice to put in it, not likely to have in them latitudes is of no further use to me. Striking out I swum a mile or so, and set foot on dry land for the first time in nigh three days. Pretty land it were, too, though bare of human life as an iceberg in the Arctic. I had landed on a shining white beach that run up to a grove of lovely waving palm trees, Above them I could see the slopes of a hill so very high and green. It reminded me of my old home, up near Quocamagomic Lake in Maine. The whole place just seemed to smile and smile at me. The palms waved and bowed in the sweet breeze, like they wanted to say, just sit right down and make yourself to home. We've been waiting a long time for you to come. I cried I was that happy to be made welcome. I was a young lass then, and sensitive-like to how folks treated me you're laughing now but wait and see if or not there was sense to the way i felt so i up and dries my clothes and my long soft hair again which was well worth drying for i had far more of it than now after that i walked along a piece until there was a sweet little path meandering away into the wild woods Here, thinks I, this looks like inhabitants, be they civil or wild, I wonder. But after traveling the path of peace, lo and behold it ended sudden-like in a wide circle of green grass with a little spring of clear water. And the first thing I noticed was a slab of white board nailed to a palm tree close to the spring. Right off I took a long drink, for you better believe I was thirsty. And then I went to look at this board. It had evidently been torn off the side of a wooden packing box, and the letters was roughly printed in lead pencil. Heaven help whoever you be, I read. This island ain't just right. I'm going to swim for it. You better too. Goodbye, Nelson Smith. That's what it said, but the spelling was simply awful. It all looked quite new and recent, as if Nelson Smith hadn't more than a few hours before he wrote and nailed it there. Well, after reading that queer warning, I began to shake all over like in a chill. Yes, I shook like I had the ague, though the hot tropic sun was burning down right on me and the alarming board. What had scared Nelson Smith so much that he had sworn to get away? I looked all around, real cautious and careful, but not a single frightening thing could I behold. And the palms and the green grass and the flowers still smiled that peaceful and friendly-like, Just make yourself to home, was wrote all over the place in plainer letters than those sprawly lead pencil ones on the board. Pretty soon, what with the quiet and all, the chill left me. Then I thought, well, to be sure this Smith person was just an ordinary man, I reckon, and likely he got nervous of being so alone. Likely he just fancied things which was really not. It's a pity he drowned himself before I come, though likely I'd have found him poor company. By his record, I judged him a man of but common education. So I decided to make the most of my welcome, and that I did for weeks to come. Right near the spring was a cave, dry as a biscuit box, with a nice floor of white sand. Nelson had lived there too, for there was a litter of stuff, tin cans empty, scraps of newspaper, and the like. I got to calling him Nelson in my mind, and then Nelly, and wondering if he was dark or fair, and how he come to be cast away there all alone, and what was a strange event that drove him to his end. I cleaned out the cave, though. He had devoured all his tin-canned provisions, however he come by them, but this I didn't mind. That their island was a generous body. Green milk coconuts, sweet berries, turtle eggs, and the like, was my daily fare. For about three weeks, the sun shone every day, the birds sang, and the monkeys chattered. We was all one big happy family, and the more I explored that island, the better I liked the company I was keeping. The land was about ten miles from beach to beach and never a foot of it that wasn't sweet and clean as a private park. From the top of the hill I could see the ocean, miles and miles of blue water with never a sign of a gas liner or even a little government running boat. Them running boats used to go most everywhere to keep the seaways clean of derelicts and the like. But I knowed that if this island was no more than a hundred miles off the regular courses of navigation, it might be many a long day before I'd be rescued. The top of the hill, as I found, when first I climbed up there, was a wore out crater. So I knowed that the island was one of them volcanic ones you run across so many of in the seas between Capricorn and Cancer. Here and there, on the slopes and down through the jungly tree growth, I would come on great lumps of rock. And these must have came up out of that crater long ago. If there was lava, it was so old it had been covered up entire with green growing stuff. You couldn't have found it without a spade, which I didn't have nor want. Well, at first I was happy as the hours was long. I wandered and clambered and waded and swum and combed my long hair on the beach, having fortunately not lost my side combs nor the rest of my gold hairpins. But, by and by, it began to get just a bit lonesome. Funny thing that's a feeling that, once it starts, it gets wuss worse and worseer, so quick it's perfectly surprising. And right then was when the days begun to get gloomy. We had a long sickly hot spell like i never seen before on an ocean island. There was dull clouds across the sun from morn to night. Even the little monkeys and parakeets that had seemed so game moped and drowsed like they were sick. Or oh, one day I cried and let the rain soak me through and through. That was the first rain we had and I didn't get thorough dried even during the night, though I slept in my cave. Next morning, I got up mad as thunder at myself and all the world. When I looked out, the black clouds was billowing across the sky. I could hear nothing but great breakers roaring in on the beaches and the wild wind raving through the lashing palms. As I stood there, a nasty little wet monkey dropped from a branch almost on the head. I grabbed a pebble and slung it at him, real vicious. "'Get away, you dirty little brute!' I shrieks. And with that there comes a awful blinding flare of light. There was a long crackling noise like a bunch of Chinese fireworks, and then a sound as if a whole fleet of shouters had all went up together. When I come to, I found myself way in the back of my cave trying to dig further into the rock with my fingernails. Upon taking thought, it came to me that what had occurred was just a lightning clap, and going to look, sure enough, there lay a big palm tree right across the glade. It was all busted and split open by the lightning, and the little monkey was under it, for I could see his tail and his hind legs sticking out. Now when I set eyes on that poor crushed little beast I'd been so mean to, I was terrible ashamed. I sat down on the smashed tree and considered and considered how thankful I had ought to have been. Here I had a lovely plenteous island with food and water to my taste, when it might have been a barren starvation rock that was my lot, and, so thinking, a sort of gradual peaceful feeling stole over me. I got cheerfuller and cheerfuller till I could have sang and danced for joy. Pretty soon I realized that the sun was shining bright for the first time that week. The wind had stopped hollering, and the waves had died to just a singing murmur on the beach. It seemed kind of strange, this sudden peace, like the chair in my own heart after its rage and storm. I rose up feeling sort of queer, and went to look if the little monkey had came alive again, though that was a fool's thing, seeing he was lying all crushed up and very dead. I buried him under a tree root, and as I did it a conviction come to me, I didn't hardly question that conviction at all. "'Somehow, living there alone so long, perhaps my natural womanly intuition was stronger than ever before since, and so I knowed. "'Then I went and pulled poor Nelson Smith's board off from the tree and tossed it away for the tide to carry off. "'That there board was an insult to my island.' "'The sea woman paused, and her eyes had a faraway look. "'It seemed as if I and perhaps even the macaroons and tea were quite forgotten.' "'Why did you think that?' I asked, to bring her back. "'How could an island be insulted?' "'She started, passed her hand across her eyes, "'and hastily poured another cup of tea. "'Because,' she said at last, "'poising a macaroon in mid-air, "'because that island, that particular island "'that I had landed on, had a heart. "'When I was gay, it was bright and cheerful. "'It was glad when I come, "'and it treated me right until I got that grouchy. "'It had to mope from sympathy. "'It loved me like a friend.' When I flung a rock at that poor little drenched monkey critter, it backed up my act with an anger like the wrath of God, and killed its own child to please me. But it got right cheery the minute I seen the wrongness of my ways. Nelson Smith had no business to say, this island ain't just right, for was a righter place than ever I seen elsewhere. When I cast away that lying board, all the birds begun to sing like mad. The green milk coconuts fell right and left, Only the monkeys seemed kind of sad-like still, and no wonder you see their own mother, the island, had rounded on one of them for my sake. After that I was right careful and considerate. I named the island Anita, not knowing her right name, or if she had any. Anita was a pretty name, and it sounded kind of South Sea-like. Anita and me got along real well together from that day on. It was some strain to be always gay and singing around like a deer, duck, or canary bird, but I done my best. Still, for all the love and gratitude I bore, Nida, the company of an island, however sympathetic, ain't quite enough for a human being. I still got lonesome, and there was even days when I couldn't keep the clouds clear out of the sky, though I will say we had no more tornadoes. I think the island understood and tried to help me with all the bounty and good cheer the poor thing possessed. Nonetheless, my heart gave a wonderful big leap when one day I seen a blot on the horizon. It drawed near and near until at last I could make out its nature. "'A ship, of course,' said I. "'And were you rescued?' "'To a ship neither,' denied the sea-woman, somewhat impatiently. "'Can't you let me spin this yarn without no more remarks and full questions? "'This thing, what was bearing down so fast with the incoming tide, "'was neither more nor less than another island. "'You may well look startled. "'I was startled myself, much more so than you likely.' I didn't know then what you, with your book-learning, very likely know now, that islands sometimes float. Their parts being a tangled-up mess of roots and old vines that new stuffs growed over, they sometimes break away from the mainland in a brisk gale, and go off for a voyage, calm as a old-fashioned eight-funnel steamer. This one was uncommon large, being as much as two miles, maybe, from shore to shore. It had its palm trees and its live things just like my own Anita. And I sometimes wondered if this drifting piece hadn't really been a part of my island once. Just its daughter-like, as you might say. Be that however as it might be, no sooner did the floating piece get within hailing distance than I hears a human holler, and there was a man dancing up and down on the shore, like he was plumb crazy. Next minute he had plunged into the narrow strip of water between us, and in a few minutes had swum to where I stood. Yes, of course it was none other than Nelson Smith. I knowed that the minute I set eyes on him. He had the very look of not having no better sense than the man what wrote that board, and then nearly committed suicide trying to get away from the best island in all the oceans. Glad enough he was to get back though, for the coconuts was running very short on the floater that had rescued him, and the turtle eggs wasn't worth mentioning. Being short of grub is the surest way I know to cure man's fear of the unknown, Well, to make a long story short, Nelson Smith told me he was an aeronauter. In them days, to be an aeronauter was not the same as to be an aviatress is now. There was dangers in the air, and dangers in the sea, and he had met with both. His gas tank had leaked, and he had dropped into the water close by Anita. A case or two of provisions was all he could save from the total wreck. Now, as you might guess, I was crazy enough to find out what had scared this Nelson Smith into trying to swim the Pacific. He told me a story that seemed to fit pretty well with mine. Only when it come to the scary part, he shut up like a clam. That aggravating way some men have. I give it up at last for just man-foolishness, and we began to scheme to get away. Anita moped some while we talked it over. I realized how she must be feeling, so I explained to her that it was right needful for us to get with our kind again. If we stayed with her, we should probably quarrel like cats, and maybe even kill each other out of pure human cussedness. She cheered up considerable after that, and even I thought got a little anxious to have us leave. At any rate, when we began to provision up the little floater which we had anchored to the big island by a cable of twisted bark, the green nuts fell all over the ground, and Nelson found more turtle nests in days than I had in weeks. During them days I really got fond of Nelson Smith. He was a companionable body, and brave, or he wouldn't have been a professional aeronauter, a job that was rightly thought tough enough for a woman, let alone a man. Though he was not so well educated as me, at least he was quiet and modest about what he did know, not like some men boasting most where there's least to brag of. Indeed, I misdoubt if Nelson and me would not have quit the sea and the air together and set up housekeeping in some quiet little town up in New England, maybe, after we had got away, if it had not been for what happened when we went. I never let me say was so deceived in any man before nor since. The thing taught me a lesson, and I never was fooled again. We was all ready to go, and then one morning, like a parting gift from Anita, come a soft and favouring wind. Nelson and I run down the beach together, for we didn't want our floater to blow off and leave us. As we was running, our arms full of coconuts, Nelson Smith stubbed his bare toe on a sharp rock, and down he went. I hadn't noticed, and was going on. But sudden the ground began to shake under my feet, and the air was full of a queer, grinding, groaning sound, like the very earth was in pain. I turned around sharp. There sat Nelson, holding his bleeding toe in both fists, and giving vent to such awful words as no decent sea going lady would ever speak nor hear to. Stop it! Stop it! I shrieked at him, but it was too late. Island or no island, Anita was a lady too. She had a gentle heart, but she knowed how to behave when she was insulted. With one terrible great roar, a spout of smoke and flame belched up out of the heart of Anita's crater hill a full mile into the air. I guess Nelson stopped swearing. He couldn't have heard himself anyways. Anita was talking now with tongues of flame and such roars as would have bespoke the raging protest of a continent. I grabbed that fool man by the hand and running down to the water. We had to swim good and hard to catch up with our only hope, the floater. No bark rope could hold her against the stiff breeze that was now blowing, and she had broke a cable. By the time we scrambled aboard, great rocks was falling right and left. We couldn't see each other for a while for the clouds of fine gray ash. It seemed like Anita was that mad she was flinging stones after us, and truly I believe that such was her intention. I didn't blame her neither. Lucky for us, the wind was strong, and we were soon out of range. "'So,' says I to Nelson, after I'd got most of the ashes out of my mouth and shook my hair clear of cinders, "'so that was the reason you up and left sudden when you was there before? "'You aggravated that island till the poor thing drove you out?' "'Well,' says he, and not so meek as I'd have admired to see him, "'how could I know that darn island was a lady? "'Actions speak louder than words,' says I. "'You should have knowed it by her ladylike behaviour. Is volcanoes and slingin' hot rocks ladylike, he says? Is snakes ladylike? T'other time I cut my thumb on a tin can, a cussed a little bit. Say, just a little bit. And what comes at me? Out of all the caves, and out of every crack in the rocks, and out of the very spring of water where I'd been drinkin'? Why snakes? Snakes, if you please. Big, little, green, red, and sky-blue scarlet. What did I do? Jumped in the water, of course. Why wouldn't I? I'd rather swim and drown than be stung or swallowed to death, but how was I to know the snakes come out of the rocks because I cussed? You couldn't, I agrees, sarcastic. Some folks never knows a lady till she up and wangs them over the head with a brick. A real gentle kind-like warning them snakes were, which you would not heed. Take shame to yourself, Nelly, says I, right Stern, that a decent little island like Anita can't associate with you peaceable, but you must hurt her sacredest feelings with language no lady would stand by to hear. I never did see Anita again. She may have blew herself right out of the ocean in her just wrath at the vulgar, disgusting language of Nelson Smith. I don't know. We was took off the floater at last, and I lost track of Nelson just as quick as I could when we was landed at Frisco. He had taught me a lesson. A man is just full of mannishness, and the best of ain't good enough for a lady to sacrifice her sensibilities to put up with. Nelson Smith, he seemed to feel real bad when he learned I was not for him, and then he apologized, but apologies want no use to me, I could never abide him, after the way he went and talked right in the presence of me and my poor sweet lady friend Anita. Now I am well versed in the lore of the sea in all ages. Through the mists of time I have enviously eyed wild voyagings of sea rovers who roved and spun their yarns before the stronger sex came into its own and ousted man from his heroic pedestal. I have followed across the printed page the wanderings of Odysseus. Before Gulliver I have burned the incense of tranced attention, and with reverent awe considered the history of one Munchhausen, a baron. But alas, these were only men. In what field is not woman our subtle superior? Meekly I bowed my head, and when my eyes dared to lift again, the ancient Mariness had departed, leaving me to sorrow for my surpassed and outdone idols. Also, with a bill for macaroons and tea of such incredible proportions, that in comparison therewith, I found it easy to believe her story. End of Friend Island by Gertrude Barrows Bennett, writing under the pseudonym Francis Stevens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.